everyone. Welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. Today on the show, my buddy, my pal, KG, a.k.a. Kevin Gill, the voice of GCW Wrestling, uh, from Striving for Togetherness Records, from No Redeeming Social Values, from Juggalo Championship Wrestling, uh, a guy who links many worlds. We'll get to all of that in one second. This is a good one, folks. Trust me. And it is all part of this sort of uh, uh, early 90s New York Week thing I'm doing on this show, but more on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and normally guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Thank you for all the hard work you do on this thing, Tristan. I can't thank you enough for that. And he will get the message to me. If you want to get in touch with me more directly, you can find me on various forms of social media at left for damien If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling everyone you know about it, letting everyone you know know that there's a show that you enjoy and we're doing it over here like this and they should check it out. You can also subscribe to it and rate it on your podcast platform of choice. You can also head over to patreon.com slash turnoutapunk and uh, support it that way. Thank you to everyone that does that. You're the reason I'm doing it in New York week right now, the reason I'm putting out three episodes. It's taken me a while to put these three episodes out, but I really appreciate you doing that. And speaking of appreciation, uh, the utmost appreciation goes to Vans, who came on board a couple years ago and said, Damien, do your podcast. Just, just don't do it in your own pocket. And they have been supporting this thing uh, ever since, and I really appreciate them doing it again. So thank you very much to the fine folks at Vans for everything over the years. I, I can't stress that enough. They've really, you know, and House of Vans will be back and I will be there doing podcasts. That is what is, uh, you, you gotta believe that. <laughs> you gotta believe that. I, I believe that. I really do. And I long to be back doing podcasts at the House of Vans. Oh, that would feel so good right now. Anyway, though, we're not going to get dwelled up in the past. We are on to the present. And right now we are talking about the past in the present and in the future, you will be hearing Kevin Gill. But first I just kind of want to go back to the weird theme of this week. Uh, I did these three episodes sort of in short succession with one another. First of all, Simon doom and David up returning to the show for a part two. Then I did Kevin Gill and then I did Omar doom and all of them kind of, I don't know. I felt they all kind of fit together and uh, there's a bit of a theme and it's definitely temporally that they are all associated with one another and, and geographically because they all take place, you know, New York city in the early to mid nineties and Chris O'Toole and I talk about this on footnotes, but this is such a, a, like a fascinating time for New York because you have so many things happening at once and, and none of them are really huge in the same way, you know, New York would explode a few years later with with a lot of the bands getting extremely popular out of there. This is kind of like, a, I don't know, like it wasn't like the zeitgeist was really in New York at this time, but, the, but it was because there's all this cool stuff happening. Anyway, we'll get into this on footnotes. This is definitely a footnotes style conversation. We're going to probably do a footnotes super show real soon with Chris and myself and a bunch of... Uh, bunch of our friends kind of just, you know, dissecting these episodes and getting really nerdy about this stuff because that's what we like to do on this show. But anyway, on to today's episode. Today on the show, my friend Kevin Gill. Kevin's someone I've known. I probably knew about Kevin way before I actually met Kevin. Kevin does his uh, incredible podcast and has been doing it for, for years now and interviewing wrestlers and people from music. And uh, long before I started championing this whole punk wrestling connection, Kevin was kind of the embodiment of it. Kevin was this guy who 
had his, uh, you know, just as a fan of wrestling at first, but had his hands in, uh, in both scenes, you know, and was doing stuff in punk rock and hardcore with striving for togetherness records and playing in no redeeming social values and, and, and music licensing stuff that we get into on the show as well. But then there's this other side of his life where he's, you know, doing commentary for wrestling companies. Him and Lars even did some uh, wrestling production. We talked about that. We talked actually about that. This has come up before. If you go back and listen to, I believe it's Lars part two, I think Lars talks about it. But uh, Sami Zayn definitely talks about it in his episode, the, uh, the Lars Fredrickson Kevin Gill wrestling promotion that he got booked for, uh, and that I got him back into punk. So go back and check out those episodes. This is something that I've wanted to happen on the show for a very long time. Kevin's such a great guy, super positive. Um, and yeah, once again, like, uh, who else could I talk to about ICP and finally get to the bottom about, of whether or not insane clown posse had a, a deep rooted punk connection, which is something that we have theorized about on the show for a very long time. And, we get to the bottom of it today. Uh, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Uh, this is a fun one. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Kevin Gill on Turned Out a Punk. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Damian Abraham, what an honor it is to be here, brother. Many years in the making, and now it's here for the taking. And we're going to make this happen right about now. Yeah, I have been wanting to do this for a very long time because you're someone who, you know, uh, like outside of just your own personal punk journey, connects a lot of dots that I'm fascinated by and a lot of worlds that, you know, and you're one of the OGs of, of a thing that I'm a part of now, which is the punk hardcore wrestling connection. You're like, I look at you as being one of the one of the originators of this kind of uh, connection that these two worlds have. Well, that's an honor, man. Yeah, I feel like when I was first super into and involved with like hardcore and punk rock and and wrestling, I remember like sitting down and like telling Jimmy from Murphy's Law about how great ECW is, like trying to explain to everybody, <laughs> like, yo, you know what I mean? And to see it come full circle, so to speak, to where now it's a thing. There's like, look, there's so many like Andy Williams from Every Time I Die yeah. is in AEW. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Brody like, King from God's yeah. Name, you know, like, yeah, it's really, it, it, right. Like it's, it, it's gone from being something that was kind of like whispered about. It was always part of punk rock going back to like Bob Mould and, and Husker Du and stuff. Of but, course. But like, you know, like to where it is now, like you're saying, where it is something very real, you know? And, and it even, and it's, it's reality goes back uh, from current times too to guys like CM Punk. Like I never thought I'd see someone on the USA network talking about being straight edge and you know what I mean? Things yeah. that are like, wow, this is inspiring to a generation because we got to hear minor threat and, and grill biscuits and get in, get inspired about positivity or sober living or whatever. And then you have CM Punk doing that at a time to like over 6 million people on WWE TV every week. And it's like how many kids got in, People got influenced to be straight edge that have no idea what hardcore is. Like, oh, that, yeah. That's, that's a gift that gives back forever. I would say that more people heard about straight edge from CM Punk than heard about it from Ian Mackay. Yeah, that's true. Like, just like, you know, that's not me being as a, as a direct source. Correct. Yeah. Like, just though, like, if you're looking at statistically, like the number of, like, not just the millions watching it on TV, but like the, you know, they talk about the billions on social media that follow it and all that kind of stuff. It is, it is a, a prominent part of of so much of people's lives that yeah straight edge was beamed into their household in a way that you know minor threat 
didn't necessarily get into their stereos. Absolutely. Now, if you added up everyone that Minor Threat influenced and then the people those people influenced, yeah, oh, you're right. it yeah. might <laughs> be on a, on a similar level. But yeah, as well, far we'd as have the direct to, source... We'd have to include CM Punk in that figure, right? Oh, so. that's very... Yeah, there you go. So they, yeah. <laughs> the paradigm has been shifted. Well, we've already shifted the paradigm of this show, Kevin, because i got to start this off, KG, the way they all start off, which is, Kevin, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Um, essentially, yes. Basically, uh, I grew up in Queens, New York, and uh, I went to a high school in Whitestone, Queens called Holy Cross. And uh, at least I went there for one year because I got thrown out. So I got put in a school in Jackson Heights, <laughs> Queens. Yeah. And I did not know this at the time, but Jackson Heights is like a cornerstone of New York hardcore. Uh, there's a lot of people and bands that come out of that region. And being put into high school in Jackson Heights, I got to meet some uh, people, both periphery and people who were in bands and stuff. And I loved music. And at that time, I, w I was getting into like the harder stuff, meaning Metallica, you know, a mm -hmm. Anthrax, uh, things like that. But it's always the quest for like, what's the hardest? Like, what's the, the realest? You know, when you hear Anthrax, you're like, wow, this is the realest shit I've ever heard. When, when what you heard before is the Grease soundtrack. You know what I mean? <laughs> of course. So... Uh, there was a kid named Mike Cooney that was in my class, and uh, he was a guitar player. He played in a – you probably have their 7-inch because you have everything. He was in a band called Discipline. Oh, uh, yeah. And But but it's weird. Like he was uh, prolific as a person but not so prolific as a, as a musician, like meaning he didn't go on to do that many other things. But his house was the house we could go to after school and hang out. He was the first guy I, I ever saw having uh, a beer in the air conditioner in his room, you know what I mean? So that it's always cold. He'd have the Marshall plugged in, the guitar in his lap. He'd be smoking a Marlboro. And at any moment, he would just start playing you the riff that he was telling you about from whatever band. So he gets credit for being the guy to be like, yo, you think Anthrax is hard. Do you know about suicidal? Do you know about this? Do you know about this? So he, he would just play me stuff, you know? And I was like totally uh, enamored. And it wasn't long after he started playing me stuff and me getting to hear this and the stories and, and the whole thing that um, me and a kid from my class. No, So the time came where I was like, yo, this CBGB thing sounds insane. I need to go. This is where it goes down, you know. Mm -hmm. So I look in the paper and I see there's a show. Oh, look, sick of it all is playing <laughs> like that sounds hardcore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so me uh, and no one would go with me that uh Mike had something to do, but everyone else where I'm like, I think everyone's down, whatever. Nobody wants to go to the Bowery, like the scum of New York City. You know what I mean? Like a, a t literal like human toilet bowl as a region um, to see a band in a crazy murderous type venue. But <laughs> uh, me and this kid uh, named Phil Bryant, who it was awesome, too, because he was like an African-American dude that had no interest per se in hardcore, but was just interested in cool things. Mm -hmm. And he was the dude that was like, yo, I'll take the ride with you. You know what I mean? And we, we took the train down to Manhattan, and we went and saw Sick of It All, Coffin Break, SFA, and one other band I'm forgetting. And I, I was scared to even walk inside CBGBs from what the outside looks like, and there's like hundreds of people outside. I'm like, this place isn't even open, or it's sold out, or something. Yeah. something's going on. I actually, true story, I went next door into the pizzeria and called CBGBs on the payphone to ask if they were still selling tickets because I, I didn't want to walk up to the door. You know what I'm saying? Well, you're like, a kid, I didn't yeah. want to get that close. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I understand. What a show, too, to see. Like, what a weird Bill Coffin break, too. 
Um, but but still, like from Seattle, yeah, yeah. I still remember, like, because that's what it said on the flyer, coffin break from Seattle. But like to see sick of it all at that time period at CBGBs, that's like, you know, that's like a, a you know their stage at the height of their powers. Yeah, and this is uh, uh, Blood, Sweat, and No Tears had just come out. That's fucking amazing. That show must so, have been insane. And one of my life's regrets is being a broke ass was I went next door when they had it to CBGB's Pizza, and I got a slice of pizza and a soda or whatever. And then when I went back into the show, I saw that Sick of It All shirt with Calvin on it, like hitting the world with a bat or whatever. The, the iconic but, much bootleg shirt, of course. Yes. And the shirt was like 12 bucks or whatever, but now I only had like eight because I bought pizza. <laughs> and it's one of those lifelong, lifelong T-shirt regrets. Oh, well, but you but, have the memories from that show. Was it like, how violent was that period of shows at CBGB's? Well, I mean, violent. Uh, the, the show I went to, I didn't see anything happen or and nothing happened to me. But also to me, I was a chump. Like I'm just some kid from the suburbs mm-hmm. of Queens. Um, I, I wore the only shirt because I was like, what am I going to wear? I'm already going to look like a herb. Like, what do I wear? The hardest thing I had was an anarchy symbol shirt. <laughs> and meanwhile, I, I didn't look very anarchistic, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I remember walking up to the thing and some, you know, some dude with like crazy hairdo or whatever is like anarchy, bro. You know what I mean? Kind of like, wah, wah. But that was it. Everything else was cool. Like I had no problems. Uh, pe- you know, people were friendly-ish, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I did get to see other, uh, I'll tell you one other early show experience. Well, before that- we move on from that, was SFA, was that with the original singer or the second singer? Was that? I believe, is Brendan the second singer? I think so, yeah. Brendan okay. Rafferty, I'm pretty sure it was him. Okay. Maybe and he went on, he, he was like the door person at CB's or was involved in promoting the shows there for years. Because I think it was Mike from Go on the first seven inch, but I guess that would have been maybe a year or two before that, maybe a couple Ooh. years before that, maybe. But that what a sh- what a first show! How did Coffin Break go over? Like, do you remember? Did they go over weird with that crowd? I I I only have vague memories yeah. of them, but everything was just like holy shit! Like I can't believe, <laughs> I can't believe the feel, the sound that this is happening. Even the layout of CBs is, is bizarre to me. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's still like I remember. The, I've only been there the one time. Well, I was there a couple times, but I only saw one show there ever, and it was the show we played there. And uh, yeah, it, it's deceptively long. Was the thing that I always remember yes. about it, like what they would call in San Francisco a railroad flat. You just walk in a narrow thing and just keep going back, and then it yeah. finally opens up a little. Yeah, definitely. And it remember it also like going back and looking at footage. It had a much higher ceiling than I ever thought it would based on video I saw, but I guess that explains how people were able to dive and, and, and actually, you know, fuck shit up when they were going crazy. Sure. And the stage was kind of low and then the bathroom was like behind the stage yeah, and yeah. past the dressing rooms with no doors. <laughs> yeah, it was very, you know, it was, it was a venue that, you know, you, you're playing it for the history, not for the comfort. Right. And the sound in there is great. Sound was amazing. Yeah. And it was and it was just something about the shape of that room and maybe because it was like almost like a funnel where it just forced people to kind of like churn around in the in front of the stage. <laughs> Literally, involuntarily, voluntarily. Yeah, yeah, you're getting swept up. You're getting caught in that mosh no matter what. I had just never seen anything like like it. And then seeing Sick of It All, like you said, at, at the height of their powers, even though I feel like they haven't lost us. That's true. I didn't mean like, sharper. yeah, absolutely. But not. I know what you mean. Like when they're at, when they're, when sick of it all was blowing up, like that would think about that. Their fuse was lit 
and it was just making contact with the the bomb material inside to blow the fuck up and become this worldwide phenomenon for 30 years. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like that's when yeah, that's almost like more more than the height of their powers. That's when it like almost kicks off. Right. That's saying. like the nucleus to yeah. go from being the Queens thing or the New York thing or the East Coast thing to a worldwide thing. Yeah, and it's it's I guess like going from there yeah, like where'd you go from there? Like, you know, where you're going to shows, hopefully, well, we're trying to get shows every weekend at that point, or you, what, where did you kind of take it from there? Well, once I went to Sick of It All, I was just like, oh my God, you know what I mean? Like, I found my thing, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I got I got the Blood, Sweat, and No Tears record, and then would just listen to it religiously, like sit there with the lyric sheet and learn all the words, and then going back over to Mike Cooney's house, and he'd be like, oh, you know Civ? Like, no, I don't know Civ. Like, what's Civ? <laughs> like, put water through a Civ? And it's like, no, like, oh, he's from this band here in Jackson Heights, Gorilla Biscuits or whatever. Check them out. So then I, I got the Gorilla Biscuits record. And that was a real game changer to me because I was digging Sick of It All, Killing Time, Leeway, uh, Murphy's Law. That was the shit I was super into. And then um, Gorilla Biscuits comes to me with a different sound. And their perspective was so different and so... I don't even know what the word is like the idea instead of singing about like, yo, you betrayed me and, um, you know, I'll stab you in the back and vice versa. Like instead of being pure anger, which was totally understandable, they had a more humane side of just like, hey, we used to be friends, but now you don't call me anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, that's mm-hmm. OK, I guess. Or, hey, stop sitting around, you know, like instead of thinking we play Donkey Kong, there's something wrong with that. And as a video game player, I'm like. Whoa, someone in a fucking record just said Donkey Kong? Like, this was way before people name-dropped everything. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So as someone who dropped a lot of quarters in Donkey Kong, I could relate. So just hearing the the different perspective that Gorilla Biscuits brought really opened my mind, I think, to a lot of things. Like, that whole Gorilla Biscuits Start Today record is a masterpiece. It's perfection. And there's so many life lessons that are, that are taught uh, through it that it's just – it's very special to me. Yeah. It's, 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 they're like one of those bands that it's like you're saying, it's a completely different side of, of hardcore. And it's amazing how it all kind of comes out of the same place, same high school, right? Like you're going to the same high school that Walter and Siv all went to, right? I don't know if they went to, because McClancy's like a Catholic school and there was also like a public school nearby. Okay. So there was like a mix of, um, of schools. I don't know if they went to my school, but I'm sure they went to school in the area. Like in my school, um, Rick Lopez, who went on to be, you know, he was in Marauder and uh, he's been in some other bands too. He's a bassist. He was in my, he was like actually in all my classes too. And another kid, uh, rest in peace, John Bowles, who played in, um, I'd have to think he was like a traditional like 70s style skinhead, which also, you know, to have one of those in your school or in your class, that kind of showed you where Jackson Heights was at. You know what I mean? Yeah. I can't I can't remember the band he played in right now. But so but he he passed away young. So, yeah. So I guess it's between like these two schools you kind of have. Like, it's amazing how much of. Oh, know, I think there was a, another school there called uh, Newton High School or something where um, Harry from 25 to Life, the drummer. And uh, Fred and all those guys went to school there. So, yeah, there was just a lot of people in those Jackson Heights. Yeah, like a lot of the New York hardcore stuff ends up coming out of Queens when you kind of break it down. Right. Murphy's Law, Leeway, Sick of It All, Grill Biscuits, and yeah, many raw more. Raw Deal. Yep. 
It's a, uh, it, yeah, like it's a, uh, it is kind of like that burrow that kind of births so much of, of that stuff. And especially that as it kind of moves into like from that, you know, agnostic front era into kind of the, the later era, later, later era eighties kind of period more when I guess sick of it all is kind of like rising up as a band as well. Sure. Sure. So you think of Queens overall, like I always think of Queens as like, you know, run DMC yeah. and the Ramones and how diverse that is, you know what yeah. I mean? And then in later days, 50 cent and whatever, but it shows you the kind of organic hip hop, hardcore and other things all truly being one in a cultural melting pot. Unlike where years later we saw people on heavy music try to incorporate hip hop themes. And it was while financially successful, it was considered corny or whatever, but you had bands like Madball or District 9 or even Leeway who very organically and naturally had hip-hop elements in their music mm-hmm. because that's where they were from. You yeah, know? absolutely. Well, it's amazing when like you look at Freddie Alva's book and it like through graffiti, you see that punk, specifically hardcore and hip-hop are coming from the exact same place at the exact same time, you know, and like there's just so much early crossover, like, you know, you know, what's Mac frontline Mackie's band, how the singers wind up becoming the producers for like stuff by brand Nubian. It's like, there's such a through line between these two worlds, all kind of in New York. Yeah. The SD fifties crew. Yeah. That's so wild. It's like, so what, what an amazing kind of like, and that, you know, like, and like Chuck Valley from Murphy's law engineered tracks on public enemies. It takes a nation of millions to hold us back. I you didn't know, know I mean? that. You're blowing my mind. That's wild. <laughs> Madness. You know what I mean? And think about that. That's all happening in one place. I don't yeah. think you would see that now because of whatever perceived cultural differences or different lifestyles or whatever. But when you're underneath, so to speak, and you're in a, pl- a place as diverse as New York, I think all the underdogs, all the outcasts are kind of all – they're different from the norm, so therefore they can be united in that instead of being su- sub-separated into like subgroups and genres. Yeah, absolutely. So where, like, where did you go kind of with, you know, you're into the Gorilla Biscuits now. When was the first time you saw the Gorilla Biscuits? Gorilla Biscuits, it took a while to be able to see. I don't know if they were banned from CBs or, or what it was, but it, it took a while for me to actually, and not because, like, in other words, if they were playing, I would have gone. But mm-hmm. um, just like Murphy's Law, it, t- it took a minute to be able to see them. And I think that was maybe a CBs policy thing. In my mind, the first time I saw the Gorilla Biscuits was, the it became a home video live in '91. Sick of it all, agnostic front and gorilla biscuits in New oh, York City. Yeah, absolutely. I was at that show. You were at that show? Yeah, <laughs> damn, dude. That's a, uh, yeah. That that also has been bootlegged way back when oh, too. Oh yeah, like bootlegged. It's still on YouTube right now. Yeah, and the, the, I use uh, me and the guys from No Redeeming Social Value also. Like we use a lot of those lines from the movie <laughs> conversation. You, know, you ever try to write an album? It's hard. You ever try to go on tour? It's hard. Now you got these 16-foot barricades. That's the main point of this thing is just get rid of the 16-foot barricades, you know? <laughs> or I, I, I love the way that it had guys like Danny Lilker and John Connolly from Nuclear Assault in <laughs> yeah. there t- to present the other side, the metallic side. And also what's notable to me, too, is that you had all these guys. Jimmy, Jimmy G from Murphy's Law comes off so awesome in the movie. Everyone in the movie comes off as who they are and what they're about. And the one guy that sticks out in a way, even though he's an OG of hardcore and he did all these things, but it seemed like they kept how to keep editing around and cutting out the stuff that Harley was saying as he would like step on Jimmy's points and things like that. You know what I mean? He he was the one guy watching it that I was like, oh, I don't know about that. Guy. That guy gives me a bad vibe or something. Yeah, it's funny, those videos, like how quotable they are and how much of that just like 
you end up remembering for the rest of your life. Like New York hardcore, like on striving for togetherness records, like the New York hardcore soundtrack, like just the lines in that, like how many, you Oh just- my God. <laughs> Yo, rap bones. You hit me in my eye. You fuck. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, when, when I first met the sick of it all guy, well, met and got comfortable with because I wouldn't have done this the first time I met them. But I, I know that whole like the speeches Lou gives on the uh, on that live in New York uh, video where yeah. it's like and and to do it in his voice, you know what I mean? <laughs> so to do the whole speech about whether you agree with what's going on or not. Oh, what I'm about to say, I'm not opening the floor to political discussion. <laughs> what, I got three friends over in Saudi Arabia. Whether you agree with what's going on or not, it's too late. We're in it. I just hope they get home fast and they get home safe. This goes out to Dave, to John, and to Larry. It's called Injustice System. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, man. It's just like you always think, and like the No Redeeming guys are such jokesters, so we would always be cracking each other up. Like, yo, man, like, you, what's up with Larry, man? <laughs> <laughs> so like yeah where'd you go i guess before you get to that point where you're comfortable with them where'd you go next for these shows what was you're saying there was another early cb show oh, that an- out to you. well the the other early show that stood out to me wasn't a cb show but it was um i went out to long island and it was all uh, it was actually my first date one of my first dates it was definitely our first concert with my girl who went on to do the label with me and is still my girl today so me and my girl went to see Sick of it all and a young biohazard. Well, I should say sick of it all and sheer terror, who I wasn't familiar with. And underneath them was a young band I had never heard of called Biohazard. What is so that they, demo era or post demo era? Uh demo era. So it's at uh in Long Island, New York at Sundance, which is like an hour away from Queens. And we went to that and I, this had a life-changing or a nearly life-changing moment that taught me a lot about hardcore. Mm-hmm. So I'm at the show and everyone's moshing and going crazy, um, including me. Like I'm going crazy that I'd come back and stay with my girl for a while. Then I go crazy. And um, I remember one time I was walking back to her and I bumped into this dude that was standing next to her. And as soon as I bumped into him, I just said, oh, hey, bro, my bad. He's like, it's all good. And like slaps me on the back. So then I stand next to my girl. And then a second later, someone else bumps into that guy and doesn't say anything. And then they just stand right in front of him. And the guy, without missing a beat, he's facing the guy and he stands and does like a spin kick. So like he's he's kicking, you know, doing a full spin and then kicking the guy on the other side of the front of his head. You know what I mean? Holy like catching yeah. him on the, on the temple with a spin kick and just kicks the dude right down to the floor. And the dude just falls down and doesn't even know what hit him. And me and my girl just look at each other and like that lesson was taught that day, like always be respectful and always be mindful because the same dude, if you're, if you're just like, oh, excuse me, it's fine. And if you just try to bump into him, he might just kick you in the head. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that, that was definitely uh, an early, an early lesson. And then I received another lesson. Then when I saw Paul Bearer come out on stage and strip down to a thong. <laughs> what the yeah, and do a set like in a thong. That was something. And with his vocals and everything and never having seen that before, that was all like, well, this is something else. That is a wild. What was the pit <laughs> like at a Long Island show? Oh, somehow even more. It's weird. Long Island brought this. You know, you think of Long Island. It's a it's a nicer, chiller, in some cases, more expensive part of New York. But I think that just breeds people who have something to prove or whatever you might call it, because the danger element in Long Island 
to me was greater in some ways than the danger element in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. We saw all kinds of people getting beat up and all kinds of stuff happening, but thankfully no one was beating us up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No, but it, it was just, it yeah. was just weird to see. Like to me, I'm like, Oh, I always would just say, well, I don't know what that was all about. Meaning maybe they bumped into the person and didn't say, excuse me. Maybe they have some beef that precedes this show. I don't know, but to me, that's also the opposite. Like, in other words, go as they say, you know, fight the outside world, not each other. Mm-hmm. Or it, go fight each other at the fucking, at the Starbucks or something. Don't fight people here. Yeah. Or fight the bouncers, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do you want to see the band or do you want to see the bouncers? <laughs> that's another, that's another, were you at that show? Or that? No, but that one I, I've listened to so endlessly. Oh, my gosh. That is a, that is one of the all-time AF videos. Also, Roger does not get the credit he deserves as one of the best onstage movers in that period. Oh my God, dude. I was scared of Agnostic Front. Like, uh, even when I got to like the other bands at first, and Agnostic Front was like almost too terrifying for me. I was like, ah, this is almost too hard. It's like if you listen to Metallica and then someone gave you like a, a pure like Norwegian black metal record and you're <laughs> like, ah, this is too far. <laughs> too real. It's getting too real. And then. I was there the night of the – It was. this is an insane lineup. This is a, uh, maybe a year later at the Palladium in New York City. It was uh, – what was the – it was uh, from the top. It was Agnostic Front, Murphy's Law, Leeway, Nuclear Assault, the Lunachicks, and Warzone. I may Whoa. be leaving someone out, but that was a lineup. And then by the end, when Agnostic Front went on, they only played like three or four songs and the show was – stopped due to war. there was like a full riot and they beat up I mean, when i say they people that were there beat yeah. up the security and it was a whole have you ever seen that riot at the palladium is that a, there's a video of that too right oh yeah i've definitely seen that video and that's the one where like the the whole like it's basically the the crowd fighting the bouncers and then the band and the and and, and friends on stage Yes, that is that is a wild, wild video. That is one, and of you the, could see there's like a who's who of hardcore everyone. Yeah, on the stage watching the band play. Yeah, and then yeah, it just it goes off. And I mean, when you watch the video, you see somebody picks up like a, um, you know, an audio monitor and just you know smashes a guard with it, and it's just absolute mayhem. And then the whole crowd comes up on the stage and just stomps on the stage and tries to break it. And yeah. His, his, that's also the, that might even be the show I'm thinking of where Roger's just, his movements on that stage are awesome for those three songs. It's like, and that was Roger riding. like out of, out of prison, so to speak. And that one voice was just about to drop or maybe just did. And they were, <laughs> they, they opened with that, that can't get ahead as I call it. I forget the name of it properly, but, um, it, it was just incredible, but it also aired to the, the lore for me of like, ah, agnostic front like too dangerous or something yeah. you know what i mean too raw my opinion obviously changed on that over time but at that time as, as a as a youngster i was like oh god like so they scare me on record and then i go to see them and like it's a riot like maybe you know what i'm saying because yep. i want to live to see another day you know what i'm saying <laughs> I, I think also when you bring up the lunatics it brings up another thing that's kind of come up on a few recent podcasts that i've done with different people that grew up in new york it's amazing how much stuff like different stuff was happening around that time. Like not just like, you know, we talked about obviously rap and hip hop and, and specifically capital NYHC, but like you also think about New York noise rock stuff that was happening, all that crusty punk stuff that was happening 
all that murder junkie scum rock stuff that was happening and and the lunatics happening too right like it's just such a it's such a big city yeah think about that like in a subgenre within a subculture you could have helmet making music yeah. you could have yeah. yeah all these genres and all these people and yeah it, it's truly amazing when you think about it and that it spoke i think to the diversity of the interests and the talent because a lot of the talent the songwriters, the players, etc. they all had a unique vision. It wasn't just, let's do what they do. It was like, let's take an influence, but make it truly our own. And all those bands that we've been mentioning, every one of them is their own signature style, their own completely original thing. Like, how much of that other stuff would you take in? Like, you know, obviously there's bands that like the Lunatics that kind of cross over, but like, would you ever, you know, go to CBs and see like a bunch of bands that were on like, uh, noiseville records or something or amrap or something or amrap yeah yeah <laughs> um honestly i'm weird like that like i'm very selective in what i like so what i like is what i like so in other words i would drive all over the east coast to see murphy's law i could never see them enough but if it was bands i didn't know unless they were opening for someone or i was somehow put into the room i often didn't i didn't necessarily explore unless it was something that i heard about or somehow sought out and wanted to see. So I got turned on to some good stuff, but at the same time now, when pe a great example is like people will see me wearing a Gorilla Biscuit shirt and they're like, oh, dude, you love Gorilla Biscuits? I'll be like, yeah. And then they'll be like, oh, man, I, uh, so you also love Judge and Bold and this and this and this. And I'm like, ah, for me, Gorilla Biscuits kind of covers that. Like the Gorilla Biscuits, like the definitive hardcore straight edge bands for me, like the, oh, besides Minor Threat, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like for me, that genre is covered there. Like, I don't know if I need any other takes on straight edge. Like, I think those guys have said everything there is to say. Who, like, who of the youth group bands were kind of still around when you're going to shows? Like, did you see any of the like, bold or any of those bands? Um, honestly, no, I might've caught bold, like opening for somebody or whatever, yeah. but I, I was just kind of all about the bands that I liked. Like I would listen to those bands at home and then I would try to go see them. And I guess it's all just a matter of exposure. And it was all very New York centric, as you noticed. So mm -hmm. uh, like bands, like I remember I went to go see a band from Boston. They opened for someone else and they were called Eye for an Eye. And they were absolutely incredible. On um, Blackout Records, a great, oh, they have two seven inches, I believe. But yeah, great band. I'm trying to remember the first one. Like you think, nah, nah, now you better get wise. Yeah. Nah, 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 nah. I picture the cover. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I saw them and I was like, oh, my God, these guys are, are amazing. And then right on the spot, I bought their record and then was a, a fan of theirs. So if, if I saw you, it didn't kind of matter where you were from or what you were about. But it, I guess it just had to tick that box for me somehow, whatever that inner um, filter is that's like, OK, this I could fuck with, you know. Did you like how much of that st like other of those fans came over? Like, do you ever have to deal with like murder junkie fans at hardcore shows, or was like the hardcore scene, you know, pretty well internally policed as far as that kind of stuff? I feel like it was pretty internally policed. And when, not to say people from other areas showed up, but if people showed up with bad intentions, or and and maybe sometimes people who showed up that didn't know what was up, and possibly people from other scenes or lifestyles could be under that that banner mm -hmm. it it would get policed like and it's funny we use the word police and i was going to say well not policing in the conventional sense but actually it is uh, policing in the conventional sense like violators were beaten were violated <laughs> and were uh kidnapped so to speak or forcibly removed against their will um you would see stuff like that 
Yeah. But, and then, you know, there was all these unspoken rules and uh, things like that. And it was very clear things like racism and et cetera uh, were not tolerated. And I was like, well, that's cool. <laughs> I'm down with that. And I also love the idea that you, there would be like the first show I ever went to at CB's, I went to with a black dude, you know what I mean? And you'd go there and there'd be black people and Asian people and white people and guys and girls. And, and that, that's what to me was really cool. It, it kind of broke down those walls between people. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, it's, it's, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, I was showing my kids the movie style Wars the other week <laughs> and, it, and it strikes me like, you know, this has also come up on, I think on the podcast with Freddie Alva, like how many, you know, uh, people of Puerto Rican descent or with like a Puerto Rican parent, like make up the early hip hop scene and the early hardcore scene. Like, it's, absolutely. It's like the backbone of these scenes where the were Puerto Rican kids and some of the what they brought to the table. You know what I mean? And, uh, in terms of the culture, in terms of it's almost like a uh, like an infusion, a spark. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And yeah, like, I don't know. I, I have so much respect for all those people, the Dominican people, the Puerto Rican people. Cubans, think about that. Without Cubans, there's no agnostic front. Yeah. Without Dominicans, there's no like Fahrenheit 451 and and other bands. Without Puerto Ricans, there's no District 9 and a billion other bands. Then you got like guys like Isaac who get to bring uh, if the Puerto Rican and the Jewish side of things together mm-hmm. to the world of hardcore, mm-hmm. further uh, splitting the atom. So I guess going back to like, you know, that period of hardcore, it's kind of a, you know, once again, looking at it from a distance, both geographically and historically, it looks like that's like a transition point where you kind of have, you know, what would become like nineties New York hardcore. And then sort of like the, you know, the tail end of that gorilla biscuits judge, you know, uh, youth of the day kind of that moment, you know? So like what was that something that was actually happening or is that just something that I'm seeing from years removed? Well, to me, what, what I noticed at the time was like at first I could go to um, CBs and see Sick of It All and, and other bands. Uh, like, But then as the years went on, there was less and less shows at CBs. And that was you know due to some of the violent stuff, but also due to the politics of CBs and what they wanted to have and not have and whatever. Mm-hmm. But then it changed to then I would be seeing Sick of It All at the Ritz instead of at CBs. And the Ritz is like, you know, like a. I don't know, 1800 person venue instead of a 400 person death trap or whatever. (laughs) So you would notice like, Oh, now the shows are at the marquee or at CB's or I'm sorry, uh, the Ritz or all these spots. So there are these bigger shows, but then the bigger shows, it would be sick of it all with three other big bands in support. And then I would notice then the, the stagnance of the undergrounds or the underneath bands, because where are they playing? Where are they growing? Where are they developing? They're not. Yeah. So while the big, big bands went to the big, big rooms and then CBs wouldn't have shows, it created this opening in the very early 90s that a seed was planted. And then I think in, in and around 1995, that seed uh, blossomed and that seed was Madball, H2O, um, Fahrenheit 451, Vision of Disorder, Crown of Thorns, District 9, yeah. Crown of Thorns, all these, uh, and many more. Mm-hmm. But all those bands rose up and then became the bands that could uh, play Bond Street Cafe and, and these other little venues that would have shows or would allow shows to be had for whatever time until someone from a band will beat up the sound man or whatever. And then there's no more shows, but yeah. <laughs> and that really did happen. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also feels like that was, you know, not that New York hardcore was ever not 
street or anything like that. But it, like, it feels like that was kind of a return to more of like a a kind of early New York hardcore, early eighties New York hardcore kind of vibe where it was like a lot of people were, you know, writing graffiti. A lot of people were, you know, like it felt like it was much more kind of about that life again. A hundred percent. And it was truly underground again. And we yeah. were all influenced and inspired by still sick of an old agnostic front, Murphy's law, all of that. But then I think a lot of people wanted to make their own mark and do their own thing. And from me going to shows in that time, you know, uh, as 91 turns into 92 and et cetera, um, that's when I, I got involved with starting to put out records because I started to see and meet bands. And I would be like, how does this band not have something out? Anything like they have it. They have what it takes. Why is this not on the next level or at least being taken seriously? And that 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 that's what made me start doing stuff is because I, I I saw an opening in the market so to speak I saw an opportunity for these some bands to step up and what would happen if there was a record people could order would they order it would stores carry it and the answer to those questions are yes and no like people would order it but stores wouldn't carry it and it was ironic when I first started doing it so by the time I was done because the same stores that would you know laugh at me and not even let me put a record on consignment on their shelf would be begging me to please drop them records. You know what I mean? So they can make money off it. It's, it's ironic how the, the worm turns. So the first thing you guys put is the intent to injure seven inch, right? Yeah. And, and intent to injure predates my involvement. Like SFT records was started by Udo Meitzner in Bayreuth, Germany. And uh, he put out the, uh, the first three records, uh, which was intent to injure, the choose X reissue and head first head first was number two. Yeah. And, and then uh, from there I contacted him about putting out the, without a call and without a cause later became Fahrenheit 451. But I came to him about putting out the uh, without a cause seven inch. And how, how did that come about? Like, like what <laughs> let you reach out to this guy that had done like, cause he just, as you're saying, it's kind of random records he's done up until that point. Yes, obviously hardcore. And, uh, this, I love the story. So how we did it was, like I said, I saw there was an opening and the first band I started to work with was without a cause. So the, I would sit with them and I would say, hey, uh, why don't you guys play with bigger bands? You know, and they're like, please, like, how can we possibly do that? So I started calling clubs to try to get them booked. And obviously the New York, New York clubs don't give a fuck, but I was able to get them booked opening for DRI and opening for Leeway. Uh, in at Studio One in Newark, New Jersey, so those became their first big shows. And all of a sudden, like I went in there, I went in a room, made a phone call, and came back out and told, "Okay, you guys are playing this date," and they lost their mind, you know. Mm-hmm. But that that's kind of what op- opened the door. I'm sorry, I lost track of your question in there. Well, I was just wondering how this relationship with this, like you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So w- that was the first move I made, and then we're like, "Well, fuck. What else? How do we do more? How, let's put out a record. Well, how do you do that?" And I, we were avid purchasers of Maximum Rock and Roll at that time. Mm-hmm. Not so much for the the content, but more for the ads and seeing what everyone was doing and where. So it was like, well, they put out a thing called Book Your Own Fucking Life. And it was like a guidebook of record labels, distros, touring agencies, like anyone that has anything to do with punk rock. And they were all put together in a directory that you could buy. And literally – you know, the directory is like, whatever, a couple of bucks. Yep. I bought it at, at Tower Records or wherever I got it. And uh, we sat down and we mailed the demo to 
every record label in Book Your Own Fucking Life. And that's from Revelation all the way down to Striving for Togetherness Records and then even shit that's like, what the, you know, who knows what it is. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of weird labels on that thing. And, you know, and we sent like a, uh, you know, an, an, a letter and a photo and a, and a, a nice tape, you know what I mean? Like in yeah. terms of sound and everything. And out of all the things we sent back, maybe like two or three in total even answered in any way. <laughs> and only one of them was like, yo, we should do something. And the one who was like, we should do something was Udo and SFT. So then I also sent them, I had just recorded an EP with my band called Stick Figure. So I sent them that and they were like, yeah, this is also great. Let's do... SFT four will be without a cause. SFT five will be um, stick figure. So I'm like, okay, bet. And that's where that started. And then he had another record or two, I believe, like already uh, teed up. If I'm not mistaken, yeah, I think um, he has a two. I think actually early on he did, which I thought was the most random. He does those uh, reissues of the upfront seven inch and the X marks the spot compilation. Yes, yes, yes. And then he does. Oh, that's right. That's number seven. Is that a choose X. of the upfront? Yeah. And then choose X is uh, as number a seven. German straight edge. Yeah, I don't know what number six is. I uh, oh, is number six? Uh, number six is upfront. There you go. Because I know number eight is twenty five to life. Yes, which is uh, you know a classic band. Rick to life also featured in that aforementioned uh, riot video. Uh, oh, very much. Well. He was in those days. I didn't know Rick's name. He was just known to me and my friends at, and my girl as loose ponytail because <laughs> he had the loose you know what i'm saying he yeah. had a ponytail but it was like i never had seen anything like that before immediately i i knew exactly what you meant as soon as you said loose ponytail because uh, you know you'd have to describe it you'd say to your girl like oh like you know you'd come back from the bathroom at cb's or whatever and she'd be like oh everything cool i'm like oh, i saw a loose ponytail like yelling at someone in the stairs or whatever it might be it, it's like but it, yeah so it, it was when so we did the uh, without a cause and the stick figure and Udo was totally honest and great to deal with and then I was dealing with him all the time and then I was like well I'm going to start a distribution company distribution by cage to distribute your records in America you know what I mean and he's like well you should just be striving for togetherness America and I'm like okay so that that was that logo was on some of the stuff and then uh, I yeah, I know the without a cause record has a distribution by cage logo on yeah. the. Uh, on the vac, I saw then, that record's hard to find. I saw I, I've been looking for that record. I still have never seen a copy in the wild, but maybe. Oh, I should, really? I want to buy it on the cogs. I think eventually, but oh hell yeah! But basically, that led to the more I worked with Udo, then Udo was just like, "Yo, like, why don't we just become partners in this and let's do more stuff together?" And then it became like, "Who should we get?" And then he gave me more and more of the driver's seat because I'm there. I'm in New York. He's in Bayreuth, Germany. So then it became like, "All right, what's next?" And I saw everything that was happening and this rising up of bands and the band that was everywhere at that moment and everything at that moment, but still not yet popped or reached their peak was 25 to Life. When you go see Murphy's Law, 25 to Life would get up and play two songs. Anyone you would go see, Rick was already there, but then most times he'd get up and do a song or two, Mm -hmm. which was a model uh, that Toby Morse from H2O used in a different way, but in in a similar way of just to get scene to get exposure and and we did the deal with rick and and his band and we put them in the recording studio or a great recording studio and they they fucking nailed that record man the self-titled yeah it's a it's like a classic record and it's it's almost like 
like you were saying, is 93 that year where it all starts going? Like that's their demo comes out. Madball kind of really, you know, it's like, is 93 the start of that next scene? It feels. I think so. Yeah. I think the seed, the seeds are planted and starting to germinate. Cause then, uh, Madball's set it off record, which yeah. is like a defining cornerstone came out in very late to, um, sorry, 1994, I believe like December 94 or something. So okay. it's all, it's almost like a 95 record. Cause 95 is, is to me the the glory year Mm -hmm. and that's the year that nyhc documentary by frank pavich was made uh and all that but that's when you had coney island high like now there was there was coney island high there was wetlands there was the piwak on long island it started to feel like you have bands like vod with the metal sound you have 108 like you know what i mean it felt Mm -hmm. like to me that was like the oh man this we're on some shit right now you know Mm -hmm. yeah and it's like it you're right like that soundtrack you go through it it's like it's like not every band sounds the same. It's it's kind of all like hard, definitely super aggressive. And it felt like it was on the cusp of something. But then it like, I guess H2O and VOD too. But like, you know, like it, it never felt like that scene really reached its potential in a way. Right, you know? right. Well, that's weird. You know how it is like there, between politics, between a lot of times people who might be incredible musicians, they're not always the best business people. Mm-hmm. Um there's no savvy management or whatever at, at that time. And then further, bands could sometimes have an ally, even if that ally was me. But then someone could get in their ear or they think, well, this money's being made or something. And then you tend to put your efforts and energy into the people that are the easiest to work with. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you don't want to bet the farm, so to speak, on some people that can't get their head around, well, how do we get our equipment to a show? You know what I mean? Like. Mm-hmm. It's got to, we both got to make the leap together. Like you guys don't have to worry about me working two jobs to come up with the money to press the records, make all the merchandise, have my girl design the merchandise, like fulfill, print, assemble, do everything. You guys have to be rehearsed. You have to be able, you have to have the wherewithal to rent a vehicle, to put your equipment in it, to know how you're getting there and back, to be there on time. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And, And not every band could do that. And that wasn't every band's problem. You know what I mean? Other bands had different issues. But yeah, I, I think part of it, part of it is the band's own limitations. But then, to be fair, well, they make great music, so do they really have to be great business people or whatever? They're in a perfect world. There should be someone that that fills those roles. And I think if there was someone there, or if bands were in bed with the right people, that maybe some of those bands could have blown up more. Like VOD had uh, VOD was opening for Corn and outselling them in merch in 1995. Yeah, but if they went on to not be on Roadrunner Records, maybe they would have sold a lot more records. I yeah. believe it was also that, it's that weird point before you know, like now you look at this this world and it's like almost tailor made for a scene like that to exist, where all these bands could reach all their fans all over the world. But at that point, you know, it was hard to find these records. Like it was legit. absolutely it's all you had to do mail us. order. Yeah, you had to go to the show. Yeah, yeah. Think about that. And a lot of these if bands the, couldn't come into the country or tour in some cases because of you know. Right, it was impossible. Yeah, all, all, all the technology and stuff that exists now, if that existed, then whether it be ninety two, ninety five, whatever year, the whole game I think could have been different because there was that generation of bands. All the bands we're talking about: Madball, Twenty Five to Life, VOD, uh, even No Redeeming Social Value. Uh, District Nine and and Crown of Thorns and Manball and all that. Well, that's that's our generation's AF Sick of It All, Gorilla Biscuits, etc. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? 
And I think unlimited potential for all. And some went on to reach great heights and do a lot of things and still are doing things. Yeah. Like I guess the band from that time period that's, you know, most present today and still unbelievable is Madball. Well, do you remember the first time you ever saw him? Absolutely. Uh, Bond Street Cafe. They were regular headliners there. And the same thing. Like it was just like, oh my God. Like these guys are insane. And you, yeah. you knew the legacy and they had records and stuff already, but the records that they had out weren't fully representative of them yet. You know what I mean? It was like the ball of destruction record as opposed and i guess the uh maybe the wreckage one had just come out the dropping any suckers seven oh my inch? god dude i listen to that that seven inch like at least 30 times a week yeah <laughs> to this day literally it gets me so <laughs> amped that um the first time i sat and, and read the lyrics along to um shit on your grave i'm like oh yeah. my god that record feels like it's on another like everything about that record just like it just looks so cool, and it's just like, I don't know, just like the vibe's out of control. And and the rage it captures is not manufactured. Yeah. Like, that's really exactly how most people felt. And and some of those life lessons and viewpoints and stuff from that record and those records at that time, those are, are seared into my heart, into my brain. And that's, in some cases, how, how I look at the world. You know what I mean? How much of the people that were kind of going to those sick of it all shows when you first go and like some of the older people, I mean, were, were still coming around or had it been like, was it like a complete shift to a new scene? Well, I, it's like at the bigger shows, I think everyone would be there, but when you're seeing mad ball at bond street or at these smaller places, and it depends on who you mean too. Like if you mean like Jimmy from Murphy's law, he's ubiquitous. Yeah, he would course, be, yeah. he would be there if he was, wasn't playing somewhere, he'd be there. But yeah, like as far as the generation of fans, I think there was probably a generation of fans who felt like, oh, hardcore died. I mean, that's what people used to say, like, oh, hardcore died after that late 80s boom uh, and now it's dead. So when we came up and started putting out records and whatever, that was the mentality where people would say, oh, hardcore's dead. And that, I think that's where Mabel came up with the hardcore still lives and things like that mm-hmm. was people from the previous generation saw it get big, so to speak. And then their bands weren't playing CBs anymore and they maybe weren't into the new band. So they didn't go and that created a smaller scene. But then that created a new scene where instead of me walking up to CBs and knowing nobody, now I could walk up to Bond Street and literally know everybody and have the same sense of community and hundreds of people standing in the street and everyone's from different places and doing their thing. And it it was our scene. It became our thing, which then due to the talent of the bands and the support of the fans, it all kind of continued to big up. And then, you know, you know, the story, then like uh, bigger labels will come around Mm -hmm. and some bands will take those deals. Some bands will self-destruct unrelated to deals just because of their own, whether it's personal issues or interpersonal issues, you know, it's a lot to manage. And you know what it's like, like when you have to be around people all the time and, and if people are annoying or whatever, that shit can really eat at you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like most obvious statement ever. Like, You've been around people, Damien. <laughs> no, I've experienced the aggravation caused by humanity. I, I know, I'm well versed in that sometimes. But, uh, <laughs> it, it's like the other thing that is, you know, talked about a lot during that time period and, and during that scene is like, 
you know, you've got the ABC No Rio scene happening as well. Yes. Kind of parallel. Did you ever go to any of those shows or did that was that just like a completely different scene? Same thing. To me, like that was squatter punk or crust punk or whatever. It I I did I ever go to ABC No Rio? Yes. But for, uh, not after or only after years of mocking it and making fun of it. Like to us in our little world of what we liked, ABC No Rio was on some other shit and it was so overly political in a way of like who's allowed to play there and who's not allowed to play there. I never was a fan of any of that separatist bullshit to me, even certain bands. So that's why I love the Gorilla Biscuits, but I gave no play to Earth Crisis like even though they're slightly different eras because Gorilla Biscuits are like, hey, this is our lifestyle. We're going to show you why we do it and teach you some lessons. What you do is up to you. And then another band might be saying like, oh, if you eat cheese or uh, are a woman with uh, reproductive rights, you're going to be burned in a firestorm or, you know, only people who follow this religion are really down or what, what anyone's thing or whatever it might be. I didn't believe in any of that. I thought if you ate meat, if you didn't, if you drank, if you didn't, whatever God or fake God or non-God or demigod or devil you believed in, all of that to me was irrelevant. So th that was, became a big mantra for me of Striving for Togetherness Records was fuck all that bullshit. And only people that are down with everything are truly down. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's why I could wear a Gorilla Biscuit shirt at a Murphy's Law show or a Murphy's Law shirt at a Gorilla Biscuit show because that, in a sense, is what it's all about. It's about diversity and different ideas. If everyone was the same and thought the same, it wouldn't be so great. And I'm not uh, – like Earth Crisis is Earth Crisis. They do their thing. I'm not trying to bring up some old thing of my interpretation of their lyrics. But for me, that that's just legitimately how I felt and that would – that kind of stuff affected uh, my viewpoint. You know what I mean? And what I wanted to support and et cetera. Well, yeah, like, I, I, I guess like you're saying, it's, it's just different, you know, takes on, on the scene, you know, it's like a, this weird sort of, uh, thing where we're all part of the same thing, but then there's these different kind of interpretations of the doctrines. A hundred percent. And for me, it was all about inclusion. There should be no dividing line. Like I didn't like the idea of, oh, we're straight edge. So if you're drinking or smoking, we're going to come up and attack you or, smack the cigarette out of your hand to me that's invasive it's like whatever you it's the same old with religion or anything else whatever you believe more power to you but the moment you try to enforce that on other people i take offense to that what what was your take when um girl a bit did you ever see moondog i did not i wish i even knew about it at the time i heard an audio of it from my friend mike cooney but I did not ever get to see them. So what was your take when quicksand started happening? Like, were you into that or was that kind of like, Oh yeah, I had the seven inch that to me was my golden era of revelation records was ordering that seven inch and you know, the gorilla biscuits vinyl, the uh, Ray and Porcel drum machine records, yeah, like Ray and Porcel seven inch. Yeah. <laughs> All that stuff was, um, but quicksand, I thought quicksand was just genius and um, their evolution did not bother me in any way. Like I thought it was natural, organic, and everything they did, you know, the lyrics, the feel of it. And that that's a record I still, I still fucks with today because it's just so to stand the test of time, to stand alone, to be without the glue that keeps us glued together and feeling so. <laughs> and that whoever heard the word excrementable. <laughs> But it's just so, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's so it was so different. I had never heard anything like it. 
it had such a groove and yeah hats off i would say walter's and, the coolest dude in the world right like yeah i've had this discussion with jake from rocks off in new york about who is the coolest person in rock and he says that it comes down at the end of the day there's two schools of thought it's either walter or it's brian baker and who is it oh, so walter you, yeah, that's like, what Jake says too. Yeah. <laughs> like I like you know Brian Baker, all respect, but like you know I you know I Brian, Walter's chill. Like I, I introduced Walter to my mom one day when I ran into him on the street in Toronto. Like wow, you know, I don't know if I'd be, I don't think I'd have the same comfort level with Brian Baker. <laughs> right, and it's amazing to think about because Brian, obviously, uh, Minor Threat original member, yeah, yeah. Uh, still in Bad Religion to this day, uh, a frequent reader of uh, of the Hard Times. He was a, uh, not when I first met him as a young person, did not like when you brought up minor threat to him, was not stoked really? to talk about minor threat. Oh, at wow. All. Yeah. I brought up Dag Nasty to him and he, he was very receptive to talk about that. But I remember as a young person, <laughs> an older friend of mine being like, whatever you do, do not bring up minor threat. And I watched many other punk die on the rocks trying to start a conversation <laughs> with him about minor threat that night. That's incredible. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's a, a good question for all the listeners of your podcast, <laughs> yeah. man, is if it came down to there's two guys, who's the coolest guy in the underground, hardcore, punk rock, whatever, is it Walter or is it Brian Baker and why? I'm opening it up. I'm going to say in rock, period. Like, I, you put Keith Richards and Walter on a plane, I'm going to choose to sit beside Walter. Well, and we can both understand what Walter's saying. Yeah, and Walter, like, you know, is not going to be a dick to you. Keith, there's a chance he's a dick to you. And I mean, if Keith treats Mick that way, what would he do to you? What yeah, exactly. You know, and I definitely pick <laughs> sitting beside Walter besides sitting by Mick. Oh, and Walter is like Walter to me is magical because he's so creative. He's such an artist. He's able to reinvent himself mm-hmm. in a way through his art, through his music, through his expression. But at the same time, as forward thinking as he is, as artistic as he is, as visionary as he is, he doesn't have his head so up his ass and he's not affected by it. So he can come back and play Gorilla Biscuits and do whatever the fuck he wants. Like some people feel like they move ahead and then they shit on what they did in the past. Yeah. Walter's not like that. No, no ego. I would say like, like just like, like so down to earth and like, yeah, like you're saying, like a guy who's in, he's in youth of the day. He's in like, Project X, he's in Gorilla Biscuits, he's in Quicksand, he's in World's Fastest Car, he's in like at nine trillion different bands, and he's like, yeah, just loves music, just loves, you know, and just yeah, what a cool, yeah, I'm, I'm, pick, I'm picking Walter as the coolest for me. <laughs> so yeah, you have a lot of influencers are picking Walter. We'll see yeah. how it all how it fully plays out <laughs> when they hand out the statue at the coolest rockers in the world awards. Yes, I'm, my fingers are crossed for Walter. The other nominees, you know. <laughs> Uh, Who will they have present that award? Will they have someone that's not cool at all present it, like will Lars Ulrich present the award? That would be amazing. They like they have the uncoolest rockers in the award first, <laughs> and the uncoolest has to present it to the coolest rocker. <laughs> I think Lars, I guarantee though, you sit down with Lars. Oh, I'm sure. He's talking awesome, old, obscure, new wave of British heavy metal to you. Absolutely. I'm sure if I sat down with the dude, but he still remains my favorite uh my favorite target du jour or whatever. And he seems to usually give me new ammo every now and again, but I will say to give, because I do mock Metallica, I would like to give Metallica props. Uh, Kirk Hammett a few years ago had like a horror festival in uh, San Jose, California. And I got to go down to it and, you know, he picks all the bands that play and he picked agnostic front to play to headline one of the nights. So I went down to see an interview AF 
and I was hanging out backstage with them, thanks to Roger and Vinny, who I used to be afraid of, but (laughs) now I know they're awesome people. Um, And they have an incredible movie out, too. But I was sitting backstage with those guys, and Kirk Hammett came back and and hung out with everybody and wanted to talk to AF and meet them and take pictures of them with them and everything. And uh, Kirk, on paper, is my favorite. Well, besides Robert, uh, Kirk is my favorite Metallica member. But then it was cool to see that the same reason I like him from interviews and from his public presence and persona, he was that same person uh, in the back. And the fact that one, anyone who books Agnostic Front, to me, you have instant credibility. And then two, you know what I'm saying? If you're in a, in a position like Kirk is, uh, it means even more in a sense that that it means that much to him that Agnostic Front is there. You know what I mean? So respect to Kirk Hammett. And also, like, Metallica might not be the Metallica we know today if it weren't for their connection to New York Hark or Michael Olago signing them to Electra Records way back when. Um, right? You know, so it, it all comes back to New York Hardcore. Yeah, when when Metallica was nobody and they were living in Anthrax's rehearsal room. Yeah. In Queen in Jamaica, Queens. Yep. Michael Olago. The same guy that probably booked Agnostic Front for a bunch of shows. That's wild to think about, man. That's a name that that uh, that comes up a lot is is Michael Alago, and I've met him a few times. I don't think he would remember because it was many years ago, but I met him through Jimmy from Murphy's Law and stuff like that. And I look forward to uh, seeing him or re meeting him again in the future, just like uh, Bob Mould, who I met backstage at a wrestling show here at the Cow Palace. But uh, I know he's in San Francisco, so one of these days I want to connect with him. Oh yeah, no. Bob is, uh, you know, it's awesome when you when you see Bob Molding. Like you, you see him out there, and he's like, he's still that fan of wrestling. Like, yes, he's not involved in the business, but he's like, he's like the hardcore dude of wrestling. It's amazing. Is he, is he the original of this connection? There's well, uh, Richard Meltzer, who played in the band Vom and wrote songs for Blue Oyster Cult and Pat, and worked with Patty Smith uh, on some Blue Oyster Cult thing, or had some connection to Patty Smith. I don't know if it was through the bluest or cult thing, but he wrote for Rolling Stone magazine and one of the first, you know, pre angry Simone's Vom band dude. Uh, he was, a, he used to write about wrestling in Rolling Stone magazine. So I kind of like, you know, but Andy Warhol also was apparently a huge wrestling fan. Yeah. Too. So it goes and back then, to the Velvet underground. And then technically, and you, you could correct me on this. I don't know how true this is, but, uh, Cindy Lauper, it doesn't, she have like kind of a, a punk origin that evolved into the Cindy Lauper of girls just want to have fun. Absolutely, and uh, I'm trying to remember. The she name had of the an punk authentic band. punk rock. Like you didn't yep. have hair that color unless you were punk rock. No, no, she does, and also had a record produced or executive produced in some capacity by the aforementioned Michael Olago. Really? Yeah. What's Cindy Lauper record? Yeah, one of her later kind of uh, like a jazz record. I think she did in the. Oh 90s. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that record. He, I love Cindy Lauper. How is Cindy Lauper not in the WWE Hall of Fame? That is because they have some terrible celebrities in there. If you're going to put Kid Rock and Donald Trump and, the, and James Dudley in the WWE yeah. Hall of Fame, yeah. I think it's certainly reasonable to put Cindy Lauper, who arguably she's equally as responsible for the success of WrestleMania as Mr. T, Hulk Hogan, and Roddy Piper are. A hundred, and you know what? And I would say that she probably has turned them down. When they probably I, I have that feeling she has to have right. Yeah, because I would have. They would have definitely, especially at different time periods, like probably come to her. Of like, course. How about the one in, in New York City where they put Bruno uh, yeah. in the Hall of Fame? You yeah. Know? Yeah. No, I think they w- must have reached out and she must be like, yeah, I'm OK. <laughs> like, I'm going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm going to be doing some other things. I, I can. It comes to me in a little bit. And respect to her either way. If she chooses not to do it, I respect her decision. But 
I, I, you, in other words, if you notice, they don't really glorify her. They don't speak yeah. of her. Yeah. So that to me makes me think, I don't know. You know what I mean? But she, who knows? she probably wrote back and she's like, you fucked up the Nexus angle. I'm not coming back. <laughs> she's like, ever since you guys ruined the acquisition of ECW and yeah. WCW, yeah. I'm one of the 7 million viewers who walked away forever until <laughs> AEW came. Yeah, I'm not into it. I'm not into it. Well, I guess like, man, Kevin, we've been talking for a long time. There's a lot more I want to talk to you about. But I guess can I move on quickly to one thing I've been fascinated about is how did that whole connection with ICP start? Like, <laughs> Because, like, to me, this is such a, you know, you're the bridge between these two fascinating but somewhat seemingly, at least to me, and you're probably going to educate me on this now, separate worlds. Well, th this is fascinating, right? So there's the scene. We're in New York City in the 90s. Um, I started the distribution part of my record label in 92, and then I was, a, I was SFT Records in full, so to speak, in terms of all the operations were headed out of America, starting with like moving at like into and out of record eight, that 25 to life record. When we pressed it, it took like a year to sell the pressing mm. every record after that, the pressing would sell immediately. Do you know what I mean? So th yeah. that was the one that, that helped blow us up, blow them up, whatever. But so that's 95. Uh, then you have 96, 97. So as the time goes on, and I'm think I always I had read a statement or a quote from I believe it was Rick Rubin or Russell Simmons and they were both inspirations to me. But I had read a quote from them that it said something like, "Yo, if you could sell more than 500 records of anything on a regular basis, the industry has tabs on you. They are tracking you. They are watching you." So I'm like, "So that's my goal. I want to sell five. If I could sell 500 of each record, I could get this together enough that maybe I'll get some kind of a distribution deal somewhere, and I don't have to." do all the legwork myself or whatever. But then I went, I hit that goal. Then it was like, oh, now we're selling a thousand a record. Now we're selling 5,000 a record. Now we're selling 7,000 a record. And the only people that came calling were like, like low end bottom feeders that just waste your time and then offer you pennies or some bigger companies that also in the end, waste your time and offer you pennies or almost like where I'm going to make less on paper, if I sell 100,000 records, I would make less than if I sold 2,000 on my own. Why would I ever accept that deal? You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I was becoming frustrated with my lack of – because you have to put up all the money. It takes a long time to get paid from the distributors. You always have to have a new record, a new pressing, a new band in the studio, new merch. It was all money out. The money in was a problem. Some of the bands you would try to build would, you know, whether it's personality conflicts, business conflicts, whatever, bands leave or whatever. And it, it just was becoming frustrating. So I was kind of getting into a darker place because I'm like, what the fuck am I doing wrong? You know what I mean? Why can't I get ahead, so to speak, or get to that next level? Like my whole house is a record. My whole house, my one room apartment is a record label. You know what yeah, I mean? And yeah. I'm just boxes everywhere and I work all the time and what the fuck am I doing? So. I beat my I had an intern for SFT Records at the time named Tommy Natali and he worked at a Long Island radio college radio station and he came in to work one day and he had this advanced dub of a VHS tape and he's like bro this is going to blow your fucking mind and it was an advanced dub of Stranglemania oh shit so I sit down and I and I you know again being in the music business independently I would see ads for ICP and all the magazines and things like that. And I'm like, I listen to KRS-One and, and Public Enemy and Ice-T and things like that. 
white rapping clowns not in not in my uh, wheelhouse. You know what I mean? And th- that's just judging them on the cover without hearing anything or whatever. It was just like, oh, that's a cool gimmick, whatever. I don't. I think Kiss sucks, and these guys probably suck too. You know? Yeah. And then I put on that Strangle Mania, and I was like, the wrestling blew my mind, and it was a nice bring back to wrestling for me because I loved wrestling uh, previously, but then we were into the same time I got into putting out records super hard also is in parallel with the decline of wrestling, you know, the nine ninety one fall off or whatever boom. from nine ninety one forward. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm watching this Japanese wrestling, getting my mind blown, seeing guys like Mick Foley for the first time, seeing Terry Funk, like who I knew, but not like this <laughs> and all that. So, I'm like, these guys are comedic geniuses. Like, they're fucking brilliant. Their commentary is the greatest thing I've ever heard. They're hilarious. If their music is, like, 40% as good as their commentary, like, I'm a fan of these guys. I wonder what their music sounds like. So at the end of the Stranglemania tape, because it was like a promo, there was a a music video for Chicken Hunting uh, tacked on the end. And, you know, the video starts off, and it looks just like a hardcore show. There's no music. You just see thousands of people, like, frothing in, like, slow motion. And then uh, the the beat drops and everyone starts moshing and strobe lights and people jumping off the balcony. And I'm like, what the fuck? This is so much like what I like already. I mean, the packaging is different. They're rapping clowns. I don't know what chicken hunting exactly means, but they're going for it. Yeah. And anytime you could see a band standing on a stage in front of thousands of people and people are losing their shit, that's the ultimate, like, this is something maybe I need to at least give a look to, you know? Mm-hmm. So from there, I just got – I was super into Stranglemania and the song Chicken Hunting. And I would just – every day I would watch that video. You know what I mean? And then I stayed with that until I was like, oh, they're working on a new record. I want to wait and buy their new record. I don't want to hear what they did before. I want to like get in uh, at the parallel where I am right now and then go from there. And then if I like it, I'll buy the back catalog and whatever. So – I waited for the, and I went to Europe with no redeeming and uh, (laughs) every day I would go to the record stores over there just in hopes that somehow it came out early or something. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it wasn't back then, right? Yeah. No one in Europe knew what Insane Clown Posse was, but uh, when I got home, I got the record uh, from the tour. The day I got home from tour was the day the record was released originally in the US and uh, I got it and I was like, I love it. And then I went to go see them. And that just cemented everything. I was like, and for me, it, it was an escape. So now we're, and I love the hardcore scene. I love the people in it. But as a, as a frustrated businessman or whatever, as someone who was having like life problems because you feel like you're a failure or whatever. And then everywhere you go, people want to give you demos or talk you up or talk you down or, oh, there's this guy I don't like. Here's these people that always have bad breath or whatever it is. <laughs> I could go to a Juggalo event, to an ICP show. I'm just the face in the crowd again. Like literally not one person knows who I am. I'm just some dude. And the fans were all super cool and like a community and welcoming. And I'm like, what a nice escape this is. I can go out. I could have some drinks. I could watch a band. They're throwing soda. People are losing their minds. It's a subculture people don't understand. And it's accepting that I feel like I belong here, you know? So that that was all happening. And then I got a job at Rockstar Games. Uh, which was a new company. It didn't even have a name yet at the time. It had just started, but I got hired by them. And I was like, oh, thank God. This is my golden parachute, so to speak. All my struggles of worrying about money week to week. Like now I have a regular paycheck. This is amazing. 
and uh, things are going to get way better for me now. Mm-hmm. So within the first few weeks of work, I'm wearing a uh, <laughs> I'm wearing a Cactus Jack T-shirt, and um, a guy that I had worked on a commercial with for Rockstar, he came in to pick up a check or whatever. So I came out to the lobby to greet him, and he saw my shirt, and he goes, "Oh, that!" But he doesn't say um, Mick Foley or Cactus Jack. He says Cactus Sack. He's like, "Oh, that's Cactus Sack." I'm working on a movie with him right now and i literally and because i follow everything and i'm like wait a minute you're working on the insane clown posse film big money uh hustlers no uh what was the first one called big money I think they have the- rhyming names big money hustlers yeah um i was like you're working on big money hustlers he's like yeah it's filming in new york and i go right now i know but like what do you mean he's like yeah i'm the director of photography <laughs> he's like do you want to come down to the set or whatever i'm like yes He's like, what uh, What day is good for you? And I'm like, how about tonight? Because meanwhile, who knows what tomorrow is going to bring? You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. these guys to me are – I'm fascinated by them, their whole thing. So um, I called up Armando from Fahrenheit 451 and was like, yo, do you want to hang out tonight? Come with me to this movie set, whatever. So Armando comes with me and we went down there and we sat and watched them film scenes for like four or five hours. There's no one there that's a guest. You know what I mean? It's just us. I don't say shit. I don't do shit. I just sit there like a mouse and watch everything go down. But I'm like, I want to talk to Violent J. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I wait till everything's done. They're like, that's a wrap. And uh, I walk, Violent J walks out of the room where we're shooting, walks down the hall, walks into like a dressing room. So I walk down there and I I start to walk into the dressing room and I could see in the dressing room, Violent J sitting at a mirror, starting to take his makeup off. And in their mythology and mythos at that time, they were never seen without their paint on. They were never photographed without their paint on. If you tried to see them without their paint on, like you'd get beat up or whatever. So I was just like, oh, shit. Like I'm not even knocking on the door. I'm not doing anything. I'm just taking one step back and I'm just going to wait out here until he comes out. You know what I mean? It's like Lucha. A hundred percent. I wanted to be really respectful. So uh, me and Armando were just standing there uh, talking and bullshitting. And then after a while, this other guy comes up to us and he's like, oh, hey, uh, you know, can I help you guys? Whatever. Are you a fan of the band or something? And I'm like, oh, yeah, like I'm a fan, but not in a, not in an annoying way. Uh, like I work at Rockstar Games and I had like a big shopping bag full of like games and clothes and everything. You know, all our Rockstar g- gimmicks and goodies. Yeah. And I was like, I work at this video game company. Um, I just wanted to drop this off and, you know, give my respect. And I'd love to say hi. But I understand if that's not – because to me, once the makeup is off, it's over. You know what I mean? And he's like, oh, let me uh, let me see what's up. I'll, I'll be right back. So he comes back like five minutes later. He's like, well, I got some good news and I got some bad news. And I'm like, brother, it's all good, man. Nice to meet you. Enjoy the games, whatever. He's like, well, hold on. The the bad news is uh, Joe, Violent J, still needs like a few more minutes to get his makeup off. And I'm like, that's the bad news? I'm like, okay. So he's like, if you guys don't mind, if you want to just hang out for two minutes, he'll be right out. So I'm like, okay. So then uh, Violent J comes out and we meet him. He's super cool. He's talking to me and Armando. You know, um, he's asking Armando about his band. And Armando's like, oh, it's like a New York hardcore thing. And Joe's like, oh, yeah. Like, do you know about Detroit hardcore? And um, uh, uh, Cold as Life? Do you know Cold as Life? life. You know what I'm That's yeah. wild. So right off the bat, we're blown away that Violent J from ICP even knows what hardcore is. Never mind can mention a, a Detroit hardcore band. So we chop it up with him. He's super cool. We're talking about music and blah, blah, blah. 
and I'm noticing, you know, a lot of time is passing, you know what I mean? So I'm like, brother, you know, I know you got shit to do. We're so grateful to meet you. We're so grateful for your time. Uh, you know, have a good one. And he, he's kind of looks puzzled and he's like, Oh, so you guys don't want to hang out then? And I'm like, well, I'm just trying to be respectful of your time, man. You know, we all know what a punisher is. You know what I mean? I'm trying to be respectful of your time. Yep. And Joe's like, all right, fair enough. He goes, but let me ask you this. He's like, you're telling me, he goes, you buy tickets and you come see ICP play live. That's what you're saying. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's my outlet. It's my escape, whatever. And he's like, do me a favor. Never buy a ticket to see us again. Like you call us up. You're our guest. We got you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I'm like, all right, bet. So from there. I just continued to buy tickets and go to their shows and I, and I did not hit them up at all because I was like, still like, let me just be in this little insulated little world. Plus don't I don't want, want to bother them yeah. or whatever. Yeah. You get that. Uh, some time goes by. I moved to San Francisco and I get a job with IDOS, another video game company out here. So once I got a job at IDOS in very short order, I got, um, well, the first thing that happened was I moved to California and I wanted to drive across the country with my girl, but the schedule didn't allow that. So then I saw ICP and Twisted and Dark Lotus were doing this massive U.S. tour called the Hatchet Rising Tour. And it had a show in San Francisco, L.A., and Las Vegas on a three- or four-day run. Like maybe there's a day off in the middle. So I was like, oh, this is perfect. We'll just move to San Francisco, and then we'll rent a car and go hit all these towns and go see these multiple shows. That'll be our trip across America, you know? And when I went to get tickets, like Las Vegas and L.A. were already sold out. So I was like, uh-oh, it's time for me to use the use the favor. You know what I mean? So I called them up or emailed them or whatever and got on the guest list for those shows. And I always remember uh, we went to the Vegas show and we're walking up to the venue. And the venue, you know, sometimes venues are just assholes. Like the venues, the security and are just yelling at people like, yo, if you don't have a ticket. Get, you're not getting in. Like, go home. The show is sold out. Blah blah blah. And as I'm walking up to the window, they're like, "Do you have a ticket?" I'm like, "No, I'm on the guest." Well, then go home. And it's like, "Oh man, fuck you." <laughs> so I go up to the window and I'm like, "Hi, I'm on the guest list." They're like, "Who's guest list?" I'm like, "Insane Clown Posse." They're like, "Insane Clown Posse doesn't have a guest list." I'm like, "Well, their tour manager emailed me today and confirmed that I am on the guest list." And she's like, "Look, honey," and she picks up like a clipboard yeah. and flips the pages of it, and it's like whatever opening band opening band opening band that's it there is no guest list and when she flips the papers there's three eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper and there's one like small matchbook size piece of paper that's also clipped as the clipboard and i'm like what's that and she looks and it just says icp guest list kevin gill plus one on a <laughs> tiny tiny piece of paper and that also stood out to me of like wow these guys are headlining a sold out show and they don't have one guest because of how insulated and, and how private their world is. Yeah. You know what I mean? So we just went to those shows. We didn't see them or interact with them in any way. We just enjoyed it. And then um, a little while later, I had the idea to make this backyard wrestling video game, which then we went into production with at IDOS. So as soon as that game was green lit and had a budget, I was like, we need ICP to be wrestlers in the game. And I got that idea approved, and then I had to get ICP. So then I contacted them. That This time I contacted them again and was like, hey, like we should do this video game, blah, blah, blah. And from that, then I went out to their studio in Detroit, and I, I directed their voiceover sessions for the game at their place instead of flying them out to us. And they were generous enough to do a lot of um, 
press appearances and things like that for us. Mm -hmm. So whenever they would appear for us, I was their handler to make sure that they were completely, you know, from the moment they landed to the moment they left, I wanted them to be treated like gold. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So we really hit it off in those, in those times together. And I didn't know fully at the time how insulated they were or that they didn't really let anyone into their world or whatever. Um, but for whatever reason, they, they liked me, they let me into their world. I was their friend. And then it wasn't long from that, that I got a call asking me if I wanted to start refereeing for them, for their wrestling company, because as they put it, no one knows more about wrestling than you do. And coming from them, I was like, fuck man, this, this is wild. Is this real life? You know? Yeah. Had you watched, had you been like, you must've watched them in WCW when they were doing that that run on there, right? Oh, a- a- absolutely. I was there that night at Madison Square Garden when they came out unannounced uh, with the oddities at Survivor Series, yeah. the night that the night that Austin uh, wrestled The Undertaker. So yeah, all, all that stuff, that, yeah. that's, it's just wild. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And so when I met them, when I met them at the movie set, that was probably not even a year removed from the WCW run. Okay, yeah. So they're they're like because that like when you started working with JCW is that the beginning of when JCW started becoming a semi regular kind of promotion? Because it was there were wait, were there DVDs before that before you know you, you yeah were they, they had they had the real early they well Stranglemania first yeah and then then they had like JCW Volume One and Two we used to have them at the video store I worked at for rent yeah with like the black packaging or whatever yeah but those were before my time. But those were also nationally distributed mm-hmm. on their music distribution deal. And they also had the unique attribute of being on the Billboard Top 10 sports uh, video releases. So when you would look on the charts and it would be number one, uh, JCW Volume 1, number two, Stranglemania, number three, The Undertaker, number four, The World Series, number five, <laughs> Stranglemania, I mean, uh, JCW Volume 2. Yeah. So they were charting and making like a big, big uh, presence. You oh, know yeah. what I mean? So th- then, then yeah, when I – so I started as a ref. So when I was a ref, I was obviously just refing the events they had. But then as I moved into commentator and booking, then that coincides with the era. Because I worked with them for years as a ref, and then they – had the idea to make me a commentator after hearing me do commentary. So then they, uh, they said that I would replace violent J on the commentary team and it would be me and shaggy two dope, like doing commentary, which uh, shaggy two dope is one of the funniest, most like, he's just one of the greatest dudes to ever walk the earth. Uh, and did he play in a punk band back in the day? Not to my knowledge, I've heard uh, not from my sh- conversations with him. There, someone told me that he played in some like kind of like more like I don't know, like just like straight up pop punky punk band type thing back in the day. But I don't know. If, I've been always wondering if there's any sort of a tape of that or anything. But I've if ne- he did, he's, he kept it for me and and the Juggalo world. Yeah, yeah, the- like yeah. To my knowledge, I did an amazing uh, multi-hour kind of autobi- autobiographical interview with Shaggy Tudope that I never released. Like it would actually make up like three or four podcast episodes or even an audio book. But uh, that's sitting in the KG vault currently. Maybe uh, maybe it will see the light of day soon. But it seemed Joey or Shaggy was way more into uh, wrestling and drawing and rapping mm-hmm. than punk stuff. 
It's funny though, how that would have intersected or would have like kind of just been around. Cause I think, you know, Detroit, unlike New York, it's so much, you know, smaller, I guess, scene wise. So these things would have intersected a lot more. I would imagine like, like him knowing cold as life. Right. And then also to those Joe and Joey or Violin J and Shaggy okay, Tudor. Well, they, they also worked at uh St. Andrew's hall as bouncers. So, and stage security. So seeing everyone that came through, you know, St. Andrew's Hall is kind of like an Irving Plaza ish mm-hmm. venue. So you can imagine the hardcore bands of the day filling that place up. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, I guess that's also like, you know, was your involvement with wrestling on, on like the actual like business side of it? Does that really start with your involvement with JCW or did your thing with Lars happen before this? The thing with Lars, uh, there was a show called uh, the DJ Riz Memorial Cup, which honored a great wrestler from the San Francisco Bay Area, DJ Riz, who passed away far too young. And me and Lars did commentary and uh, produced the DVD that we put out of his uh, memorial event. And we, you know, we shot all the green screen hosting segments, and then we did all the the play by play commentary and. That that was done while I was a referee. I actually refereed on that show, um, but I brought that finished product to uh, Violent J and Shaggy Two Dope, and we sat down in their recording studio and watched that DVD. And then at the end of it, Violent J turned. He's like, "Okay, turn it off," and I turned it off because we watched like it for a good clip. And then he just starts talking about other things, and then he's like, "Hey, so we've been looking for a new commentator, and the craziest thing is we found him." And I'm like, oh, really? Who is it? Because all these great minds were in and around JCW, like Raven and Scott Demore mm-hmm. and all these mouthpieces. So I'm like, oh, who is it? Raven? Is it Scott Demore? And Joe turns and looks at me and is like, it's you, brother. I've been looking for someone that can do my job on commentary so I could be a commissioner for years and we can never find anybody. But we just did, and it's you. You're the new commentator for JCW. It'll be you and Shaggy and blah, blah, blah. And that was off them seeing me work with Lars. And then a short time later, we started doing the weekly pay-per-views out of, out of Michigan. God damn. I got to get that DVD. I, I have no idea that was released on DVD, that show. Oh, are you serious? I got to see that. That's wild. It's incredible, dude. You should see. And also, I have a second DVD me and Lars did that never came out. Uh, but I feel like I should put it out on High Spots or Independent Wrestling TV or something. Yeah. It's, call, it's called State Line Throwdown. And the same thing, me and Lars have all these hosting segments and then all the play-by-play. And uh, that show featured a young man who's now uh, wrestling as Sami Zayn in uh, in WWE. But he was the headliner on our show, as well as a lot of the great uh, wrestlers from this area. But it's a great little snapshot. And then, oh, in fact, wasn't... Uh, well, I was going to say, that second DVD you put out... Exists, or didn't put out. I'm still... Oh, I'm you're sitting. You're up. sitting on. I should say, exists and turned out of punk lore because Sammy. Yes. Sammy says that's what got him back into punk. Was going was work, doing an interview punk. segment with yeah. me and Lars, and I mean, obviously, it's the Lars, but I mean, I was in the segment too. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, like, he credits. He said both of you. He didn't just say Lars. So it's definitely like, uh, yeah, like you know, I, I got to see it. We can put a we put it out turned out of punk records if you want. We can oh start, fuck yeah, dude! The first DVD release, the first any release on turned out of punk records. <laughs> yeah, uh, stuff that's referred to on the show can have a have a, a distribution platform. Absolutely. Well, uh, KG, this has been incredible, and I would love to have you back for a part two. Would you come back for a part two at some point? I would, in the future? Yeah, I would come back cold, weekly, monthly, and yearly until these dumb motherfuckers see clearly. <laughs> well, this has been that I'm down with TOAP.
<laughs> well, this and they has been... cannot fuck with me or you, my friend. This has been a thrill, man. Thank you for putting up with my uh, scatteredness and finally being here to make this happen. No, it's an absolute dream come true, man. I've literally, this has been on my uh, podcast bucket list and it's really an honor and a thrill to be on a show like yours and to be listed in that listing alongside all of the icons from all over that that have been on Turned Out of Punk. So I'm honored. I hope that a small fraction of your, oh, I mean, I hope a large fraction, but I would settle for a small fraction of your massive listening audience. I hope they check out the Kevin Gill Show podcast, which is, it's not exactly weekly, but there are like hundreds of episodes of it. Oh, definitely a, some incredible episodes in that archive. In, it's an in-person interview series and, you know, it's everyone from multiple episodes with Lars Fredrickson, with John Joseph, with uh, MVP, with M-Dog Mac Cross, with Mick Foley, Sick of It All, like Agnostic Front. Uh, Toby Morse from H2O. There's nowhere you're going to get arguably more hardcore punk rock and pro wrestling guests anywhere uh, except on the Kevin Gill show. And uh, my main gig now is I'm a, besides doing the podcast is I'm a wrestling commentator. Uh, I'm, I'm working for game changer wrestling. We're doing shows all over the world. Uh, game changer wrestling is that DIY wrestling revolution. The world has wanted shout out to, of course, to the West coast pro wrestling, to the underground wrestling Alliance, to everywhere that books your boy KG, because I love talking about the graps, baby. Thank you, Kevin, for coming on the show. When you heard right there, Kevin will be back for part two at some point in the future. Kevin also wanted me to mention that he's going to be reissuing some classic Striving for Togetherness records and New York hardcore classics as well on DignifiedBastards.com, his website. Out now, there's the VOD still 12-inch with some bonus tracks, District 9, School of Hard Knocks on CD with bonus tracks, and a Six in Violence complete discography. And coming out later this year, Without a Cause, with the Nation of Neglect 12-inch with some bonus tracks, and the Shutdown, Turning the Tide EP, on a 12 inch and Kevin will be back and we can talk about all that stuff. You know, we're going to connect more dots here. We we're here. We're connecting like uh video games and, and ICP to, to Jimmy Gestapo and, and Murphy's law. You know, that's, that's why I love doing this thing. Cause I, I like, I just like connecting the dots. You know, that was my favorite part of Wee's playoffs. When you do the connect the dots part, I love doing connect the dots and activity books when I was a kid. And now I'm doing connect the dots with this podcast. That's, you know, what we do. And speaking of connect the dots, in the next two days, I will be putting up the final episode in this mini turned out of punk series of, of, uh, uh, early mid nineties, New York kind of themed episodes, which I guess definitely connects back to that 1865 week, which happened last week. So go back and listen to those episodes with Honey Child and Sasha Jenkins, because they really also are talking about the same sort of era in New York. And uh, yeah, they, they all fit together. And what also fits in with this one is the final episode of this miniseries that I've done, which is with Omar Doom tomorrow on the show. Omar Doom is a DJ. He played in a hardcore band back in the day called Ordeal. But you probably recognize him from a multitude of Quentin Tarantino films. He's been in, I think, all the last few of them, uh, including as one of the Inglorious Bastards in, or the Bastards in Inglorious Bastards. We talk about a lot of stuff on this episode. This one's really interesting. I. I had no idea when I watched that movie that I would be talking to one of the bastards years later about Gigi Allen. Things I never thought would happen in my life. But they do, and they do because of this podcast. Uh, so that's it. I will see you on the next episode. 
Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. Get informed. Get involved. Turn on the news. and Check your news sources when you turn on the news because there's stuff happening all over the place right now. A lot of people standing up. If you can afford to to donate to some bail funds, please do. Uh, if you can't, just just get involved. Show up, and and it's a it's a very important time for all of us to be paying attention all over the place, not just in uh, you know America. I'm in Canada, and it's important for us to be paying attention right now too up here. Uh, fuck fascism, as well. Sign your organ donor cards because you're not going to need those organs by the time uh, they're, they're looking for that organ donor card. Trust me. And, and it, it helps other people. It definitely helps other people. Go out there and make your own culture. Spread your voice. Uh, be creative. Start a band. It's hard to start a band right now. Uh, start, start a webpage. Start a fanzine. Start something from your house. Just, you know, uh, get, get involved. Get involved as much as you can. And that's it. Uh, I'll see you next week on the show. Stay safe. Love you. Bye. Next week on the show. Next episode on the show. I'll never get used to that. Ever. Ever. Oh, I got the hiccups. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm going to get water. Bye.